This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. Good evening, everyone. I have a couple of remarks to make by way of introduction. Uh, The first one is you all have an outline before you, and I guess the uh, speeches which will be delivered in this series pretty much follow that outline. Nevertheless, that outline was made about, oh, I don't know, four or five months ago. And in the interim, of course, one does more work on the subject and comes up with different ideas and sometimes finds that a different arrangement of the material is more profitable. And so, although in general I'll be following this outline, uh, you will pardon me when I stray from it or change somewhat the order. The second remark that I want to make is that Uh, I really appreciate it when those who have come together for this class ask questions. I think questions are always profitable. Questions tend to enhance the subject and to make many parts of the subject clearer. And so I hope you will feel free to ask as many questions as you want. The problem is, of course, that I forget to ask for questions. I have a way of becoming too absorbed in the material, I guess, and having a one-track mind, I forget to ask you for your questions. So if you have a pressing question that you want to ask very quickly, just raise your hand. You don't have to reach for the ceiling, but raise it so that it's visible to me, and I promise you I will stop and give you an opportunity to ask your question. Otherwise, I'll try to remember to pause here and there to ask if any of you do have any questions. You who are here will recall that last year, in the month of July, we discussed together what the scriptures have to say about the problem of suffering a topic which, by the way, occupies a significant part of the scriptures. In the course of discussing that subject, we were, by virtue of the nature of the subject and the truth of the scriptures, compelled to ask the question, what is the purpose of God in sending suffering? In answer to that question, we found that the scriptures actually present us with quite a few answers. You have, for example, the answer in 1 Peter 1, where Peter reminds us that sufferings are like fiery trials, which purify our faith, that it may become evident that our faith is God's gift and that by means of this gift of faith, God glorifies the riches of his own grace. We observe too that Peter also in chapter five of his first epistle 
speaks of the fact that sufferings are judgments, but that judgments must begin at the house of God and must begin at the house of God because, as he goes on to say, the people of God are, to use his own expression, scarcely saved, saved as it were by the skin of their teeth. It's extraordinarily difficult to save them and it takes judgment to accomplish their salvation. We notice too that in Romans 8, Paul reminds us that the sufferings of this present time work together for our good and for the good of all those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Various purposes are accomplished by God in sending suffering upon his people. Nevertheless, at the root of all these different reasons or different purposes that God has in sending suffering, there is one that stands out, one that is fundamental, one that is really the main, the only purpose that God has in sending suffering, and that is to sanctify us. The Reformed Witness Committee, in awareness of that truth, decided that it would be worth our while to pursue that aspect of the question further this year. And so decided on a series of discussions and speeches that would show the sanctifying power of suffering, hence the title. Now, I agreed to speak on that, and so I will do that too. But I frankly admit at the outset that the subject is intimidating. And it's intimidating because I find the subject of sanctification one of the most difficult subjects in the whole of Scripture. As you know, Reverend Hooksma in his Reformed Dogmatics follows the pattern of most Reformed theologians and divides all of dogmatics into six heads of doctrine. Theology, the doctrine of God, anthropology, the doctrine of man, soteri uh, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. I have had opportunity, of course, in the years when I preached on the Heidelberg Catechism to study all of these six major divisions and all the sub-doctrines that are included in each major heading. From the very beginning of my ministry and perhaps even from the beginning of my theological studies in seminary, I have always found the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, to be far and away the most difficult. And by most difficult, I do not mean necessarily the most difficult to grasp the basic ideas, but most difficult to understand. And I have struggled for all the years 
the 50 plus years of my ministry attempting to come to some clearer understanding of the doctrine of soteriology. I must frankly admit that this difficulty with understanding the doctrines of soteriology puzzled me because after all, soteriology has to do with God's work of applying the gifts of salvation to his people, applying them to their hearts. It is God's way of saving his people. And the way in which he saves them are, uh, is composed of the steps of salvation, the golden chain of salvation, regeneration, faith, calling, justification, sanctification, preservation, and glorification. And one would think that that would be the simplest of all topics to understand our salvation. After all, it's a gift God gives to us. It's a work of God that is going on within us. It's something happening to us. And every day we experience in our own lives that work of God. If that is so close to our lives, so personal, why then is it so hard to understand? And why are there always so many questions about these various steps of salvation? Is it just my inability to see the simplest truths of Scripture that are the obstacle? Or is there something about the subject itself which makes it difficult? I take comfort and finally came to some comfort in my struggles with this topic when I read and studied especially Article 12 of the third and fourth head of doctrine in the Canons of Dort. And the Canons of Dort are talking about this subject, especially about regeneration, conversion, and sanctification. The fathers in Dort, as it were, searched about for adjectives to describe the difficulties one faces in discussing this work of God. And they came up with two very comforting adjectives which they used to describe the work. On the one hand, they called it mysterious. And on the other hand, they used the word ineffable, which in fact means impossible to describe. They pointed us with those two words to the fact that though our salvation is something that is going on within our hearts now, nevertheless, it is a work of God that is profoundly mysterious, so much so that we must never hope to come to an understanding of it on this side of the grave, and altogether so wonderful that it beggars description in human language. That comforted me. I thought to myself, if the towering theologians among the fathers 
of that great and notable synod that met in Dortrecht in 1618-19 to do battle with the Arminians, found these doctrines to be mysterious and ineffable, I who can barely stand in their shadow ought not to be surprised that the richness of these doctrines eludes me. Bear that in mind. I'm not intimidated by questions. You may ask as many questions as you want as you try yourself to grasp these doctrines. But I'm going to be to feel free to say to you, I can't answer that question. I don't know, even though I've thought about it and puzzled over it, I do not understand. That could very well happen. Having said that, we ought to get on with our subject. First of all, before we proceed any further, I want briefly, as briefly as I am able, to review with you the things we talked about last time, to refresh your memory on some of these things, and to tell those of you who did not hear the lectures last year what we're coping with when we're talking about suffering. There are just a few points that I want to recall to your minds and underscore. In the first place, contrary to much evangelical thinking in our day, contrary to Pentecostalism, contrary to the so-called prosperity gospel, the scriptures present to us the solemn and inescapable truth that suffering is normal for the child of God. In this life, we must not look for an easy pathway to walk on level ground through grassy metal, meadows splashed with the color of beautiful flowers under sunny skies by twinkling brooks. It isn't that way. When the scriptures reach out to define for us what the life of the Christian is all about, the scriptures tell us that it is a life of discipleship and that discipleship entails denying oneself, taking up one's cross, and following Christ. No mention of happiness, of ease, of luxury, of a delightful time here in the world. You will not find it anywhere in God's Word. Our fathers were so impressed with that that when they wrote the form for the, uh, for the solemnization of marriage, they began that form with the words, whereas married couples are subject to many troubles and afflictions. I have had young couples come to me and brides-to-be who have said to me, can't you change that 
That's so pessimistic. That's so sour a note to sound on this joyful occasion of our marriage. But I had to tell them, no, I'm not going to change it. Our fathers are right. You must understand that the solemnity of the vows of marriage and the importance of its institution is due to the fact that married couples are subject to many troubles and afflictions. That's their lot. That's to be expected. The sufferings of life are normal. My mother, who probably knew better than a lot of us what a life of suffering was, for she struggled with serious illnesses almost from her childhood, used to use a Dutch expression that she repeated frequently when I and my siblings tended to make a lark out of life. I won't say it in Dutch, few here probably understand it. But translated, it goes like this. The very best of life is nothing else but weariness and sorrow. She repeated that frequently. It made an indelible impression on me. I knew it in Dutch before I understood what it meant. She reminded of us of that repeatedly. And she reminded us too that there is joy in life and that we must not go around, as Billy Sunday put it, with our heads so low on the ground that we could eat oatmeal out of the tailpipe of a car. We must be happy, but our happiness must be entirely separated from the experiences of life. There is not to be found the source of the joy of the Christian. That left its mark on us, on me, for sure. In the second place, concerning suffering, I want to remind you that the fundamental truth which underlies everything that we intend to say as it was the basis for everything we said last year is the sovereignty of God. We begin with the sovereignty of God. If we eliminate from our discussions and refuse to acknowledge the truth of God's sovereignty, we have nothing more to say. I have finished my lectures. I have no further word for you. Everything hinges on the truth of the sovereignty of God. That is, with respect to our subject, God sends all suffering by his own hand. Our Heidelberg Catechism reminds us that of that rather early in Lord's Day 9 when in discussing the doctrine of providence it tells us that there is comfort in providence and that that comfort is this, that we must be 
patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity and receive all that befalls us as from the hand of our heavenly Father. That's a practical, experiential confession of the truth of God's sovereignty. We begin there. We don't begin there because it's forced upon us or we are compelled by the scriptures to begin there. We begin there because we understand that the truth of God's sovereignty is our real comfort in all the sufferings of life. I remember reading Psalm 90 at the bedside of an old veteran in the faith who was nearing the time of his departure from the battle to join the church triumphant. And as I was reading Psalm 90, I came to that verse, Thy truth shall be my shield and buckler. And he stopped me and he said, The only truth that can be my shield and buckler is the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. He was right. That is our only comfort. So we begin with the fact that all suffering in whatever form it takes comes to us at the hands of and from the direct activity of a sovereign God. In the third place, we took great pains to note that the scriptures in a fairly surprising way point out to us the fact that in this world, in general, the sufferings of the people of God are more in number and more intense than the sufferings which befall the wicked. I know that that came as a surprise to many of you, and we had to, had to investigate some passages in Scripture which teach precisely this truth. We discovered, for example, what the psalmist says in Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And he means by that not only just a general statement that the righteous suffer many afflictions along with the wicked, but he means by that that the sufferings of the righteous are greater in number and deeper and more intense in their reality in the lives of God's people than anything the world knows. It is the lot of God's people not to suffer less than the wicked because they are people of God, but after all, to suffer more than the wicked suffer. That's corroborated, as you know, by Asaph's sad complaint in Psalm 73 when he tells us the problem of God's dealings with the wicked and the righteous were so strange and unsettling to him that they were the cause of his 
almost losing his faith. My feet well nigh stumbled, he says. And his problem was simply this, a problem which children of God had faced countless times over the years. The wicked prosper. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They curse God with impunity. They sin against the Most High and no judgment comes upon them. They have all that the heart can wish. But as for me, Asaph says, and you can see the tear trickle down his cheek. As for me, every morning I am chastised. I wash my hands in innocency. What's going on? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous endure chastisement with the dawning of each new day? He finally understood that, not in the sense that he learned that the sufferings of the wicked were, after all, greater and more in number than the sufferings of the people of God, but because the experiences of this life and the possessions that are given to individual people never, never express the attitude that God has towards men. When the Lord fills the treasuries and storehouses of the wicked with riches, Asaph says, I understood when I went to the to church that God is setting them on slippery places. And the more they have, the more rapidly they slide down the slope of their riches into everlasting destruction. But as for me, regardless of all my sufferings, regardless of how many and intense they may be, as for me, thou wilt hold me by my right hand. Thou wilt guide me by thy counsel, and afterward receive me into glory. Perhaps it's an aside, but I always enjoyed that word receive. Afterward receive me into glory. Creates in my mind the vision of our Heavenly Father standing at the door of heaven's home, eagerly awaiting the, the arrival of his children who are struggling, burdened, afflicted, suffering, but on their way to glory according to the counsel of Almighty God. God who awaits at the door of their arrival awaits with open arms so that when they come and are there, he welcomes them with open arms and ushers them to that house of many mansions of which Jesus speaks in John 14. A beautiful figure, he welcomes home his suffering and afflicted, struggling saints. How is it that the sufferings of God's people are more in number and more intense than the sufferings of the wicked? 
Although we discussed that at length last year, let me make just a few brief remarks to demonstrate the truth of that. In the first place, only the people of God know the suffering of persecution. The wicked do not. There is a striking and important difference between the two. It is possible that wicked people suffer at the hands of others. The Viet Cong in their battles against the armies of the Americans in Vietnam suffered untold hardships in their desperate cause to bring communism to the whole of the country. All their suffering was not persecution. Their suffering was for evil doing. The man in prison is there because of evil doing, as Peter expresses it in 1 Peter 4. The people of God, when they are persecuted, suffer for well doing. They love their enemies. They pray for them that curse them. They represent the cause of God and of his covenant in the midst of the world. They stand for the honor and glory of God. They are good workers who serve their employers faithfully. They are obedient to their superiors. They are the best citizens of a country. And for well-doing, because they do well, they suffer. That makes persecution unique to the people of God and dreadfully difficult. If you ever get hauled into court, and there is a strong possibility that that will happen, for condemning homosexuality, and you are charged with a hate crime and eventually imprisoned, it will be because you are suffering for well-doing. And that will make the persecution more painful. In the second place, and perhaps more importantly, the suffering of the people of God is greater than the suffering of the wicked because the ties that bind them together within the sphere of God's covenant and church are closer, richer, more significant, more powerful ties than the world ever knows. I think I use the illustration of a husband who loses his wife Wicked men lose their wives too. The husband who loves the Lord and who loses a wife who loves the Lord loses not only a wife but a sister in Christ and one with whom he has become in the truest and fullest sense of the word one flesh. A parent that loses a child does not in the mere loss of a child differ in any significant respect from worldly people who also lose children. But the pain is greater and far more intense because the child which a parent uses, loses is a covenant child. The irony of God, the extreme irony of God is that that which makes the loss of a loved one more painful than 
anything the world knows is at the same time the comfort and the joy of a saint. Another reason why the sufferings of the people of God are more intense than anything the world knows, and perhaps the strongest reason of all, is the fact that the child of God is a sinner saved by grace. No ungodly man knows the awful suffering that sin entails for the Christian. The world knows nothing about that. The world may suffer because of sin. It may suffer AIDS because of its promiscuity. It may suffer imprisonment for life because of the crime of murder. It may even know some remorse as Judas Iscariot even knew when he threw the 30 pieces of silver on the floor of the temple but the child of God knows in a most unique way the intense agony which the reality of sin in his life brings to him. When the consequences of sin are his lot, he is reminded of the fact that these are the chastenings of the Lord. The Lord's hand is upon him. When these chastenings come his way, he loses the consciousness of God's love and God's favor and knows only God's wrath and anger. A child of God can't stand that. I can't, you can't either. The wrath of God. Dreadful. To have no consciousness of God's presence. To be abandoned by him. In a sense, in the same way in which Christ was abandoned on the cross, for we are all partakers of the sufferings of Christ. To pray and receive no answer. To try to reach out with trembling hands to God who has promised to help us and find only coldness and darkness and rejection. Those are unbearable. But there are those times in the life of the child of God when these things are burning realities. The conscience of a wicked man certainly tells him when he does wrong, because he has a conscience too. It's the voice of God passing judgment on his works. But he drowns the voice of God in drink, in boisterous laughter, in indulging in yet greater sins, in mocking the justice of the Most High. The child of God walks with a burdened conscience when he sins. And a burdened conscience is an awful thing. Perhaps more than half of my pastoral work in the course of the years 
has been with those who have burdened consciences. I made it a rule when even young people came to me for advice on a certain matter to tell them, whatever you do, never, never go contrary to your conscience. It leads to trouble. It leads to grief. It leads to insoluble problems. It can drive you almost out of your mind. But you all know that there are times when sin has the upper hand in our lives, when the burden of a troubled conscience is great. That's a suffering of which the world knows nothing. And finally, on this subject, the child of God lives in the midst of a constant, unending battle against sin. It's a battle that goes on day and night. It's a battle from which there is no relief. It's a battle that never stops. It's a battle that is so often seemingly hopeless. It's a battle when the enemies of the Christian seem to overwhelm him and he struggles for his life. It's a battle of which the Psalms speak incessantly in the most powerful phrases. It's a battle that at last becomes so intensely wearying that the Christian soldier finds it difficult to go on. That kind of a battle the world knows nothing about. It is a source of suffering, of grief beyond compare. Indeed, many are the afflictions of the righteous. One more point I want to make about sufferings, and that is this, that sufferings are always the judgment of God against sin. Always. In every case, when these judgments come upon wicked people, unrighteous people, godless people, or when they come upon the people of God, the righteous, those who are the objects of God's love. They are judgments, and let us never forget it. Judgments are God's fury against sin. When my wife and I traveled to northwest Iowa a couple of weeks ago and passed through these places in Iowa where the floods had destroyed almost everything. We took the time to go aside to the village or the town of Parkersburg, a little bit north and a bit west of Waterloo. You will recall that less than a month ago, Parkersburg was hit by a vicious tornado. The devastation was so complete and so overwhelming that my wife and I did not stay very long. We felt guilty 
gawking, sightseeing, taking pictures of what was sheer misery for those who lost everything they possessed. It reminded us of the descriptions one reads in books of no man's land, that space between the German armies and the armies of the Allies in France in World War I, where the armies were stalemated, when neither the Allies nor the Germans could advance, and when the land between was subjected to constant, intense bombardment so that nothing living was there anymore. We talked about it as we drove on, and this is one of the conclusions to which we came. When God, in his fury, comes against sin to punish the sinner, the wrath of God is a terrible thing. We can take it all so lightly. We can be so glib. We can sin so easily. We can say to ourselves, comforting ourselves with the false ideas, God doesn't do anything about it. I can live as I please, and God refrains from punishing me. I can go on my own selfish and wicked way, and there is no judgment. Let us never, never forget that God is a holy God and that his fury against sin is terrible. Those judgments in Parkersburg 2 came on the righteous and the wicked, as all the judgments of God do. The hope of the Christian is that the scriptures teach us that all judgment, all judgment upon this world is mediated by the cross of Christ. The judgments of this world, when God destroys the wicked in his fury, come through the cross. You know what Jesus himself said before he went to Calvary. Now is come the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. And it all comes through the cross simply because all men who ever lived are judged on the basis of their answer to one question. What did you do with Christ? Their answer is the ground for their judgment. The world which mocks him crucifies him again, if they can, is destroyed. But because all judgment is mediated through the cross of Christ, and the elect who are given to Christ from eternity as Christ's possession, and are those for whom Christ died, and who hide themselves by faith beneath the shadow of the cross of Calvary, discover to their utter amazement and to their eternal rejoicing that Christ 
bore the vicious fury of the wrath of God revealed in judgment when he himself in the place of his people went to hell. And that by an astounding miracle of the cross, a transforming miracle, the judgments which Christ endured for his people still come upon his people, but are changed through his perfect sacrifice to blessings and means of their salvation. That is basically the teaching of scripture concerning suffering. And so I'm going to ask you at this point whether you have any questions before we go on to begin our discussion of sanctification. Any questions on the things that I've said? No one? Oh, yes, I'm sorry, John. Yeah, I think you're right. We must not use the word mystical, of course, in the sense of subjective experience divorced from the objective reality of the Word of God, which is characteristic of pietism and revivalism and so on and so forth. But mystical derives from the word mysterious as probably you realize and that prompted your question. The theologians in the past, reformed theologians now, who stood in the tradition of, of our reformed confessions used to speak of a mystical union between Christ and his church. And they did not mean by that mystical union something which is divorced from and independent of the Word of God, but meant it as a mysterious union of which Paul speaks in Ephesians 5 when he talks about marriage as a picture of Christ and his church. I show you a mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church in that sense. Our father spoke of a mystical union. The term mystical in that sense carries with it the connotation of being so much the work of God, so much the mighty, powerful, wonderful work of God that it defies human understanding 
and human ex explanation. The union of Christ and his church, the mystical union, is mysterious. I, so I think the answer to your question is yes, that's a proper way to speak. The trouble is, you know, you use mystical today and people conjure up images of uh, those who base their faith on dreams and visions and subjective experiences and all that. And we must not have that, of course. Anyone else? Yes. Corny. Pardon me? Yes. 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 The, the best way to uh, understand what suffering involves is to compare our life now with what it would have been insofar as we can understand it if we had not fallen into sin. A life of bliss, a life of supreme happiness, a life of fellowship with God, a life of the unending consciousness of his presence, of his majesty and glory and power, a life of total devotion to him. Yeah. And the scriptures point that out too. The scriptures speak of suffering in, in any number of ways. Anyone else? Okay, then let's get on with the subject of sanctification. The subject of sanctification is going to uh, consume considerable amount of our time in these speeches. But it is a subject, I think, concerning which there is a lot of misunderstanding and a subject which is important for us to understand insofar as that's possible. I want to give you this evening just the basic ideas that are involved in sanctification. Uh, in the first place, as far as the word itself is concerned, it comes from two Latin words. And this part from the Latin verb facera, holy to make, to make holy. That's what sanctification means. And while our English word is derived from the Latin in that respect, the Dutch has the same idea. The Dutch word for sanctification is heilig making. Heilig being holy, 
and mocking, of course, being to make. So sanctification very simply means to make holy. And uh, that etymology of the word is adequate for our purposes too. That is what sanctification means, to make holy. It is that work of God, therefore, in the heart of the elect sinner and on the basis of the cross of Christ, according to which he, through the Spirit of Christ, transforms his people from depraved, totally depraved sinners into holy saints. Holy saints is a redundancy, of course, because the word saint comes from this too. And the word saint means one who is holy. One who is holy is a saint. That means, of course, that the Roman Catholics and their doctrine of sainthood are as wrong as wrong can be. You don't have to be declared a saint by the Pope before you attain to sainthood. Every child of God is a saint. That's why I don't like to talk about the Gospel of St. John, the Gospel of St. Matthew. Sure, Matthew was a saint and John was too, but so are you and so am I. And because God used Matthew and John to write these gospel narratives does not mean that they are saints in a sense different from our sainthood. So sanctification means to make holy. The question is, of course, and that's the question which we have to face, what is holiness? In order to understand that, what holiness is, we must, as Reformed theologians and Reformed believers, follow the lead of Huxema, who in his Reformed doctrine, always in all these questions, insisted we had to begin with God. What is holiness in God? I have a definition of holiness as Huxma defines it in his Reformed Dogmatics on page three under capital B2. God's holiness is his infinite divine ethical perfection concentrated in and consecrated to himself. That is, that divine virtue according to which he eternally wills and seeks and is consecrated to himself as the only good. That's Huxima's definition. Now, I don't want to get into a long analysis of that definition, although I certainly agree with it, but I want to point out that the key word in the doctrine of holiness is consecration. One who is holy is consecrated. God is holy in his own infinite being and is consecrated to himself. That is, and I find very difficult to use anything but human terms, his consecration, his self-consecration is his total absorption with himself. His total 
self-concern, his total self-interest. What would be in us the gravest of sins is in God the highest perfection. If you say of a man, he's interested only in himself, he's always seeking himself, all he ever thinks about is himself, you speak of a man who is very, very evil. That which is intolerably evil in a human being is God's highest and most majestic virtue. Whatever he does in his own divine being as the triune God, and as he carries out his eternal counsel, he does for himself, not for you, not for me, not for the church, not for anybody except himself. He is a jealous God, the second commandment tells us. He will not, according to the second commandment, tolerate images because he will not share the glory that belongs to him alone with any other creature. And he will punish not only the individual who refuses to acknowledge him as God alone, but their generations as well, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate him. He's jealous. Absolutely, profoundly, totally jealous. His consecration for himself is complete and total. That's his holiness. When God set the tribe of Levi apart from the other 12 tribes and appointed the service of the tabernacle to the Levitical priesthood, and when out of the tribe of Levi, God appointed Aaron as the high priest, and when in the book of Leviticus saw the apparel which, Adam, which Aaron had to wear as he performed his high priestly duties, there was a mitre that was placed on his head, which had a broad front, and on which was inscribed words, which was the theme of the entire tribe of Levi, and especially of the high priest. And those words were, holiness to the Lord. They were consecrated to the Lord. All their work was supposed to be wrapped up totally in the service of God. Holiness in a man is his complete consecration to God. He can never be consecrated to himself. It is a sin. It is a deadly sin for a man to be consecrated to himself because he's created by God. He's upheld every moment by God's providence. He is supplied with everything he possesses by the hand of God. The purpose of his creation is to reveal God and the glory and majesty of God's own being and persons. And he is holy when his life 
from beginning to end, with as the second commandment of the law states it, when with his heart and mind and soul and strength he is wholly consecrated to God, does everything, thinks everything that God may be glorified. That's holiness. That lies at the heart of holiness. Man was created in the image of God and among the elements of the image of God in which man was created was holiness, knowledge, righteousness, holiness. When man fell, he lost the image of God. That didn't mean that he lost holiness in the sense that he became a kind of a amoral automaton. That wouldn't have been so bad yet. His sin did not simply result in the loss of holiness. But what was far more dreadful and far more awful is the fact that God's punishment uh, upon Adam for his sin was that his holiness was changed to unholiness. And unholiness is total self-love, total self-consecration, total self-devotion, to the total exclusion of God. And so man became so depraved that not only did he lose his original holiness, but it became the vilest of sin, of sins. His consecration, his devotion, was now towards himself. And towards himself from this point of view especially, that he said to God, I'm sick and tired of living a life of, de of consecration to you. I'm going to consecrate my life to Satan because Satan has said, if I do that, I will be able to consecrate my life to myself. I want to do what I want and not what is thy will. Satan put that thought in his head, as you know. Thou shalt not surely die, but the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt become as God, knowing good and evil. That is, you will, you will ascend to that position where you will be able to decide for yourself independently of God and with no regard for what he says, what you want to do, you will be able to decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. And you can thumb your nose at God and spit in God's face and say, I don't care what God says, this is what I want and I will consecrate the whole of my life to myself. That's unholiness. And it is, of course, the service of Satan. So he lost his holiness, and in its place came this dreadful unholiness. Now, sanctification means to make that person holy 
once again. That's simply what sanctification involves. Now, we have to be very sure that we understand the difference between justification and sanctification. We're not talking about justification. It would be very difficult, if not impossible, to connect in any way suffering with justification. Justification, because it too comes from the Latin, and this part of the verb means to make, means to make just. You can see where the word just comes from that. And the Dutch, instead of heilig mocking, to make holy, has rechtfaardig mocking. To make righteous. Now, while I agree 100% with this kind of meaning of the word sanctification as it originates from the Latin and as the Dutch express it, it is not right, and it's a sad quirk of history, to call justification to make righteous. Justification does not mean to make righteous, as the etymology of the word would suggest. In fact, the idea of justification as making righteous is Roman Catholic. As a matter of fact, Roman Catholicism teaches that justification means to make righteous. It doesn't. It means justification, and we're going to have to use the term, it's a venerable term, but we're going to have to be very careful that we understand that there is a significant difference between these two and that justification means finally not to make righteous, but to declare righteous. That word declare is the crucial and fundamental word in justification. So that justification means simply this, that God says of the elect sinner on the basis of Christ's work, a man who hates God, a man who spits in his face, a man who shakes his fist in front of God, a man who boldly says to God, I'll live as I please, and all your commands can be damned. I couldn't care less. A man who hates God with every fiber of his being, God says, declares of that man, you are without sin. That's justification. I don't see any sin in you. Now justification is, of course, obviously a tremendous work. Uh, I wish we could go into that a little bit, but I was just reading a, a book last night of the theology of the reformers that's a part of a, a five-volume series of books on the history of doctrine. 
And the author of The Man Who Is Discussing the Theology of Luther says in that book that the main principle of the Lutheran Reformation was Luther's distinction between sin and grace or between the law and the gospel. That's it, between the law and the gospel. Now, I don't know if that man has never read any Luther or whether he's trying to be funny or what, but that isn't it. Of course, Luther made a distinction between law, the law, and the gospel, especially as a way of salvation. But what is Luther known for? What has he been known for since he began his work in Wittenberg in 1517? What is the first thing that comes into your minds when you're talking about Luther's doctrine? Justification by faith. That was he himself said, the hinge on which the church hangs. The one fundamental truth of the doctrine of salvation. And he defined that term by means of the Latin expression. Just let me put it here in Latin a minute because maybe you Latin students will remember it. Justus simul peccator, that is, just while at the same time a sinner. That's Luther's doctrine of justification. A godless, depraved, corrupt, abominable sinner who not only doesn't do any good but can only sin, God says of him, He has no sin. That's justification. While we were yet sinners, Paul says, Christ died for the ungodly. Read that marvelous, marvelous passage in Numbers that always thrills me to the core of my being. Numbers 23. Balak had summoned Balaam to curse Israel, and Balaam had tried by all kinds of hocus-pocus to persuade God to let him curse Israel. And finally, Balaam brought Balak to a place up there on the high plateau of Moab where they were overlooking the valley, the Israelites in the valley of the Arnon, but where they could only see the, the outside of the camp, the mixed multitude, the rottenest part of Israel, where all the trouble and rebellion started. And Balaam thought to himself, when, when we see that part of Israel, Israel at its worst, God will let me curse him. And here's what he said. And he took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. You want me to curse that people, God says? How can I? I don't see any sin in them. I don't see any sin. 
I don't see any sin in Israel at its worst. Why not? The Lord is God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Christ, on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, God says of this depraved, corrupt, abominable, rebellious people, I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob. I don't know what you're talking about, Balaam. I don't see any sin. There isn't any there. How can I curse when there's no sin? That's justification. Not to make righteous, but to declare righteous. The sinner, the sinner. Sanctification means to make holy. And now we have to quit. So we'll come back to this again, the Lord willing, next time. And get on with a very noble and worthwhile subject. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have tried this evening to say a few things about thy mighty works and matchless deeds which thou, Jehovah God, dost perform. We have tried to say what thou dost say in thy word. And try, we have tried to understand a little bit what thou doest. But all we have done is mumble a little and stutter a little and say a few things that hardly scratch the surface of the greatness of thy power and of the splendor and beauty of thy mighty works as thou dost perform them, especially in the salvation of thy church. Grant unto us, O God, that we may be content not only with the little we know and not pry curiously into things which thou art not, art not pleased to reveal, but that we may be so astounded at the greatness and glory of that little we do know that our hearts are filled with the glory of thy great and holy name. Far above all thy creation, thou dwellest in infinite perfection. Even the angels cover their faces with their wings when they stand before thy throne and cry all the day, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Thou dost perform thy mysterious and wonderful work of salvation in our hearts. How can we ever thank thee enough? May we who are the recipients of such great blessings live lives of consecration to thee, and especially when we come to understand more clearly that the sufferings of this present time work holiness in us, increase it, 
magnify it, strengthen it. May we receive all the sufferings of this present time in humble submission to thy will. Bless us, bless what we have discussed. Lord, bring us back again next week according to thy will. And may we marvel always at thy wonderful works. Forgive our sins, Lord. Impute them not to us, but impute to us the righteousness of Christ. We have no righteousness ourselves. In Christ's righteousness, we are perfect. In thy sight, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.